Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you doing? Uh, you know, I'm a... I, I love how... I was going to say I'm jazzed, but then I was like, oh, I'm like half jazzed. <laughs> I, like, I, like jazzed is like jazzed, but like this is like, I'm jazzed. I'm like half jazzed. That's good. Um, I'm just, I'm excited... Today is something different, and we're going to see how it goes. I love that. <laughs> That's I love where I'm at. When you said I'm half-jazzed, I was like, you're half-jazzed? Does that mean you're jizzed? That's the energy I'm doing tonight, everybody. Not the greatest, but we're here. Um, wow. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is a special episode of the show because this is a paranormal episode, and we, we haven't done one of these in some time. Yeah. I want to say, excited. oh, I couldn't even pick the episode number, but the the tsunami one? Tsunami spirits, yeah. I think that that may be, that um, might be the um, most recent. Eleven? Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to fact check you right now. Nope, if I get into nope. that phone, I'm going to lose my, my focus and then we're going to be, we're going to be hooped. Um, <laughs> listen, couple yeah. quick pieces of business off the top and I'm yeah. excited to give these updates. Number one. Few episodes back, we had a conversation. It was the, I believe it was the Chippendales, the Curse of the Chippendales episode, episode 69. Uh, We talked about a time in our youth, our shared youth, where we remember going to Taco Bell and seeing a young gentleman. Yeah. And we called him Crayola Head because his hair was bright crayon red. And we, you know, we, it was this thing that was very significant for us in our shared history and memory. And so we talked about it and then I thought it would be fun if, what if we tried to track him down? Right. I was like, there's no way. Also, let's all keep in mind. There's no way we would ever be able to for sure prove this. You know what I mean? Like, but it was like, if you were around this age, around this time and you were living 
around Belleville or you were in Belleville and you were frequenting a Taco Bell or had been to one that you remember. Um, Again, so I put all this information out there. Shout out to my hometown, uh, one of my hometown radio stations. They picked up the story. They wanted to spread the word. (laughs) Of course. Uh, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I got a lot of I got a lot of feedback, got a lot of responses, a lot of people that I know, a lot of people that I don't know. And I think the 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 one piece of messaging that it's been kind of messed up is people just thought I meant a redhead. They were like, oh, his hair was really red. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're talking it was dyed box crayon red. We're not talking a ginger. We're not talking a redhead. We are talking the color red like a stoplight, like a stop sign. Like oh, it was bright. We're talking, we're talking from a box. This does not exist in nature is what I have to make clear. Yes. So again, I put this call out again. Findcreolahead at gmail.com is the email. <laughs> if you think you could fit the description, we do need to see photographic proof of you at the time. Yes. Uh, I also uh, found something that... I don't it, it gives us another another clue kind of. Oh. Uh years ago, and I know if I show you the cover, you may remember this. You uh <laughs> you filled out this very adorable girlfriend's uh memory book for me. Yes. In the uh section entitled Happen in Moments. Uh there is uh uh, our absolute favorite memories together. Um, oh God, when when we went to see Blink One Eighty Two at uh, Much Music and we threw them candy necklaces and Travis opened ours and was oh we yeah. almost died. Yeah. Uh, Taco Bell with Crayola Head and Young Paul McCartney, and that's when I remembered I had the hots for his friend who looked like a young Paul McCartney. <laughs> oh. My God. Yeah. Yes. I forgot about that. That's a second layer. It It is. I don't need to. I'm not interested in a reconnect. <laughs> no, but there. this is something. But it helps. The story. Again, it helps. You were this age at this time and you had a young friend <laughs> who might have resembled a young Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I started, I was looking through letters that you had sent me hoping there was something. And then I found this and I started going through it. And I was like, we'd have to mention it. We did. We did. So. Well, listen. Okay, I'm writing this down. Young Paul McCartney, the plot thickens. Like, I I almost kind of remember a face. If I see a photo, I would be like, oh, yeah, that's him. But like. Yeah, I felt the same way about Crayola Head. It's like, I feel like I could, if, if I, if shown a photograph, I feel like, uh, but from that time, not, not from course, from that time. Um, but yeah, we believe that this was 1998. We believe it was February. Um, again, in a Taco Bell at the time, we feel like this teen boy would have been born between 78 and 84. Uh, find Crayola (laughs) Head at gmail.com. Uh, and little McCartney, um, is again, a clue, a clue. Um, so that, that was the first update. Again, a lot of people just saying like, oh, I had red hair or my friend had red hair. And I was like, no, 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 not red, not red. We weren't being rude when we said Crayola head. We were just merely stating a fact that this was from a box, dyed. Oh, it was. Red like a lobster. Oh, it was 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 so bright. So bright. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, like manic panic for people who are from our era. That kind of die. Anyway, so this is the only other time I'm going to push for this. We're not going to like, you know. But I just thought I, w- I needed to put a clarification out. That's all. Yeah. Um, now, there's another update that I wanted to give. And this is in reference to, I think it was last week's episode of the show. And I talked about how uh, I had been, every so often, I get the itch to watch Blue Valentine. Yeah. And, and I don't because I've done it two or three times and it guts me. And there's just no reason to revisit it. Yeah. Well, here's the up- update. I watched it again. <laughs> Of course you did. Oh. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm watching this movie and literally, and I'm not even kidding you, I'm so dead inside now. I was just like, this used to gut me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, that's sad. That's sad when the movie that you thought was like the absolute most gut-wrenching, sad, tragic, etc. You watch it through new eyes and just go, eh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It says more about me than it does about the film, for the record. The film is very impactful. This says more of about just uh, that I'm like, oh, at some point you just, you know, you're like a vase that gets broken and then glued back together and then it breaks again and you glue it. And sooner or later, when you try and glue it back together, you're missing pieces. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Water's going to get through that. Water's going through it. Yeah. Yeah, I get it's that. Going through I get it. that. Yeah, some say you get tougher. I say you become more and more delicate, like a fine Swiss cheese. (laughs) I love... (laughs) I love that I thought, because you were talking about a vase, I thought you were going to say, like, fine china. Mm. And in the end, you went with a fine Swiss cheese. And I could not love you more for it. Listen. Oh, I am what I am. I... (laughs) (laughs) This is the energy we're bringing to the table tonight. Buckle in. Oh, I gotta ask you the question on everyone's mind: What you drinking over there? Oh, I'm lame. (laughs) No, I shouldn't say that. I just, I, I can't. I'm just not in the in the mood for booze, and I know that shocks a lot of people. Me mostly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So doing a water because hydrate for the love of God, hydrate. Uh, And then I'm just doing a coke, just to you know. All I have is just a, it's not enough. It's just a scotch of water in this cup. Like, it's just like two fingers of water. And that's not enough. That's not going to get me through this. I, for context, everyone, if you're wondering why I'm, my energy is like a jagged little pill, it's because (laughs) I, uh, I have, have had, I've finally done it. Like, I've had a lot of early mornings and a lot of stuff on the go. And I finally have worked myself to the point of like, my eyes were closing I went to take a nap. I told Christy, I was like, I just need 20 minutes. I just need a 20-minute nap. Just let me close my eyes and I'll be fine. Yeah. And then I woke up to a blaring alarm that when I looked at the clock had started going off a half an hour sooner. I had slept through an alarm for half an hour. So that's, again, I was like, don't put booze on the table and don't put booze in your body. This is not the time. No. This is not the time. But guess what? You know what? We're We're still a hoot and a half. And this show has always been an equal opportunist. Drink if you want. Don't if you don't. Yeah. When we say drink, it can be a Shirley Temple. It can be a water. It can be, I once had a Kool-Aid on this show and I loved it. You did. You did. The other thing I very quickly want to say before we move on is that in the nap that I had today, this is what you'll appreciate. I was living somewhere and I had uh, two houses, one at each end of the street. And I believe I was living with a friend of the podcast, Leslie Seiler. 
And we were in the one. And then I saw yeah. in the distance that the other house was on fire or like outside it was on fire. And I was trying to get there and I was trying to get in the house and all these people were like, hey, yeah, the house has been on fire. And I was like, oh, wow, thanks for letting me know. Um, and they were like, we tried our best. And then Kiefer Sutherland showed up and he told me, look, here's what's going to happen. We're going to start a neighborhood watch. And if you we're going to take turns, everybody in the neighborhood is going to take turns and we're going to do a walk. We're going to patrol the area. And if you don't feel comfortable going on your own, I will come and meet you every single time and I will do your walks with you. Um, it should be noted that I believe in the dream on, for context. I don't think I had ever met him before. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it current Kiefer Sutherland or Lost Boys Kiefer Sutherland? It was, here's the only other interesting aspect to this, is that it was, it would have been current, but he was very, um, he was very like, I don't want to say small because he, I know that he is a, a, a shorter gentleman. That's not what I mean. I mean, he was small. Like it was like he was, he was almost like shrunken down. Like his, his features, like his head was very small. He was very small. It, it wasn't like natural. It wasn't just that he was like, you know. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I could, hmm. I'm sure I could analyze this to death myself about what this all means. And that, you know, you, you're trying to do one thing and then there's something else on fire. And, you know, maybe Kiefer Sutherland's who's going to save you in the end. But, you know. It's, uh, I think it's all there. <laughs> oh, and a lack of, a lack of outside help yep. is also something that it was like, we saw it was on fire and we did nothing and you were like, thanks, I'll do it. Yep. That's. But, but then yeah. someone that I didn't really know, but who I've always had an affinity for was like, I'm going to help you. And that feels. That feels promising. It feels nice. Yeah. I would choose to take, you know, solace in that. I, I think that's for the best. Now, we're talking, of course, about Ed and Lorraine Warren on this episode of the show. If you don't know anything about them, don't worry. We'll get into that in a second. But it should be noted that there is a lot of stories, I believe, that connect to to this story um, that are also famous horror movies, correct? Or or the, the inspiration for many yes. horror movies. Yes. A lot of cases that they have investigated right. have gone on to become the the inspiration or the basis of at least nine different horror movies as of now wowzer yeah now, do you have a favorite horror movie i mean i mean i people probably know by now um i'm sure i've mentioned it before i am a scaredy cat like i'm not good with with scary things jump scares are not good for me um I, I'm not a fan of gore. <laughs> I don't want to look at it. But, but, uh, we went and saw the new Scream oh. this weekend. And I I could have just spent the whole time crying with joy because this it was in the moment that I realized how obsessed with that series I have been since it came out in the mid-90s. Like, that first one, I have seen so many times. And I didn't even realize I'd seen it so much. But, like, when there's, uh, the newest one just has so many callbacks that it's so beautiful that I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. And then I'd, like, full cried. And I was like, this is, what a beautiful ending to this story. And then I found out another one is planned to come out <laughs> within the next year or so. So, not an end. But, um... I thought it was lovely, and I love, uh, I will love that series till the end of time. 
Uh, but I also have a special place in my heart for a quiet place. Oh, sure. And uh, Happy Death Day. Ah. Which, it feels very like, uh, okay. But there was something about it that I really get into, and I don't know what it is. It's, well, because it's... It's got the comedy and it's got a scotch of romance, and that's all I'm asking. I'm not saying it has to be all romance, but right. give me some, give me, give me, like, put in some humor, sure, add an adventure, and in the end, God, I'd love it if we thought those characters were going to bone, you know? Like, that's all I ask. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm a fairly easy to please gal. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, I used to be really into horror movies, and then I, I – it's funny, the older you get, I feel like, you think it would be the opposite, where it's like when you're younger, you'd be more scared of everything, but, you know, maybe now I should really give myself over to some horror movies, as I've determined that I'm so dead inside, I <laughs> – <laughs> it would help me feel. Sure, uh, I'm sure. Kidding. I'm kidding. I feel all the time. Uh, you know what I feel for is Chris Evans and that uh, talking about that rescue dog. That makes me feel something. Now, granted, that's <gasps> below the belt. But the point is, um, <laughs> come on. We, uh, we are going to need a Blanche name for you, I think. We're going to, you know, and it's really Although come Blanche feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Little Blanche? <laughs> Little oh, Blanche? Just, just straight up Blanche. It's just both. <laughs> I think it's just a term, yeah, that can go, it can be used, yeah. spread around. Um, <clears throat> but no, I, I was, I did used to be really into horror movies, and so it's hard for me to choose a favorite. I mean, look, Blair Witch Project, I think, was brilliant. Oh. And I did rewatch that um, at some point, I think in the pandemic. And it does, I think it holds up, personally. I'm like, this is, for what it was, such a smart idea. And I remember yeah. at the time being, like, so convinced it was real. Um but then, of course, if you dig into it, too, I don't think that that was a fun shoot for those actors. I think what we're starting to find out now is that it was like mm -hmm. they were – it was kind of like a – they were being mentally kind of tortured in the process through through the process, which is also unsettling. Yeah. Um, but there's so many good ones. I mean, again, I've talked about it on the show, I think, before. Changeling, uh, not the Angelina Jolie, the original one from like the 70s. That is a classic. Right. Um, and the one I'd like to give a shout out to, and I don't know if my friend from high school, uh, Jason, listens to this show, but uh, shout out if he does. We watched a movie in high school. We got really into the Leprechaun series of, of, of horror movies. Sure. And uh, <laughs> they're... They are what they are. And if you like a little comedy, trust me, there's a lot of comedy because it's like, of course. is this serious? Is this not? But there is a film called Leprechaun in Space. <laughs> of course. And it doesn't make sense. And I just remember vividly, and there was a big group of us, but I remember Jason and I especially just like crying with laughter because it was just so ridiculous. Like at one point there was like a kind of like a romance scene, not with a leprechaun, but like the male love interest was literally like went to take his pants off and his like his his line was say hello to mr snake and it was no. just like it was like you're not even trying you know what i mean like yeah um, stuff like that but then i think the best moment of all where the two of us just laughed so hard was there was a moment where it was like wait a minute why does he have a lightsaber and then me going why is he in space <laughs> sure Oh, so that's a real fun one if you're looking for a real romp, uh, much right. like the Glee Curse. If you haven't checked out that episode of the show, please do. <laughs> that slipped last week. I don't think I got my reference in, but we're back on board. Um, <laughs> what a joke. What a oh. joke. 
But yeah, I feel like, uh, I mean, I could list so many. There's so many good ones, but I'm sure we're going to talk about some of them uh, later in the episode, probably. So uh, maybe I yeah. shouldn't say any more. I'm fairly certain that Leprechaun in Space was not inspired by this case, but I shouldn't assume. I hate to tell you, but I did not know of that movie until this moment. There's also Lepre- Leprechaun in the Hood. Oh, my God. Like, which, again, problematic. But um, yeah, it was a different time. It was a different time in film. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of the Leprechaun series, but I've never had an interest. Oh, there's bang, very loud banging <laughs> happening in my home right stop. at that That's moment. That's freak me out so hard. Oh, it's it. it's it's a child if it's on that side, but it was okay, loud enough that it it was the timing of it. Yeah, yeah. That I was like, Leprechaun, don't like that. And it sounded like a Leprechaun was like, oh, you like it. <laughs> I almost Doing tried a to jig. Yeah, a oh, jig. yeah, it was it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable, and I don't care for it. But yeah, yeah. Listen again. Yeah. Any noise we hear for the next, it, it, you know, it's good. Again, this is going to make me feel something. If anything creepy happens, this heart will race, and I'll be like, "There she is. She's still here. She's still alive." Oh, if I, I, I had not considered. It. I hadn't even thought of it since. But now I'm re- reminded of all the problems. We had during the tsunami episode. Yep. Yep. I have. I am cooked, surrounded by crystals. Like, just know that I am like, there's so many crystals in my presence because I'm like, we can't do it again. We can't do it. No, that. Uh, oh, it God. Was really, really. Yeah. For people who don't know, because I don't think we were even doing Patreon episodes then. So we probably, I don't know if we ever talked about it. But yeah, there was a lot that happened during that episode, like tech issues couldn't get the things going again. It was a tough edit. Like there was so many issues that happened. And that's the crazy. video stopped partway yeah. through or something. So then when we posted it, we had to just post like a, sorry, <laughs> there's yep. like the audio was still there, but it didn't record the video for like, it was, yeah, it was weird. There was just too many things. And then it was after that we were like, oh shit, we've only ever had problems during a ghost episode. Yeah, I think that's why we stopped doing them. <laughs> you know, probably, probably. So I we'll, think we had a conversation about it that both of us completely forgot about where it was like, maybe we shouldn't do those anymore because it's really scary. And it was like, yeah. And then, you know, time passes. Well, I mean, it's been eight years since a year ago when we did that. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that we've yeah. forgotten. So I can't wait for us to go another year before we do the next one. Yep. Oh, boy. Yep. No, I'm sure we'll do one. Uh, I, this one is probably different. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. I, I'm sure I don't know. Great. And listen, I've got so much rose quartz, clear quartz. I mean, I've got a little bit of everything over here that I'm sure that this will be bringing the good energy. I well, and see, we didn't have that last time. This is what no. happens when you're seasoned professionals. Now I wear a crystal around my neck at all times, just in case. So <laughs> seasoned professionals, indeed. We need to get suits like the Ghostbusters. Oh, I was just gonna be like, right, but can mind me like a little low cut? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> not exactly like theirs, but like. There's going to be definite cleave. Yeah. Definite. It's just how it works. 
It's just how it works. Well, yeah. listen, let's get into it then. Let's get the jump stairs, jump scares started if they're going <laughs> to happen. We're talking, of course, Ed and Lorraine Warren on this episode of the show. Ed Warren was a self-taught demonologist and his wife, Lorraine, was a clairvoyant and light trance medium. Over the course of their 61-year marriage, the Warrens investigated thousands of paranormal cases. Some of their most famous cases went on to inspire horror movies that make up the Conjuring universe. So get ready for true crime and cocktails with a paranormal twist. Not only will Christy give you the rundown on the real stories behind some of the most popular horror movies to date, but she'll also give you the real story about Ed and Lorraine Warren. Is there something sinister hidden in their past that they don't want the world to know? Stay tuned as Christy Oxborough investigates. <laughs> I I haven't been in my right mind. This I week. loved it. <laughs> what I love too is that it, you know what I could do? What I yeah. could do is pre-read them. I could pre-read it and then in the nope. practice it. I never do. I always want to read it cold. Because nope. we want it genuine. I want it genuine. And halfway yeah. through there, I was like, I see what the tone is. And you'll notice I had a, a very significant tonal shift when I was like, I know what this character is that she wants. She's written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what was happening there. But, you know, and now I'm real. I'm thinking, God, what if tomorrow I comment if, you know, because usually my husband will be in bed by the time we're done recording this. So it's the next morning. He'll ask like, oh, hey, how'd it go? What if I'm like, oh, it's just so weird. The kids, you know made this loud banging noise right at the beginning. And what if his response is, oh, the kids stayed up late and didn't, weren't in their room. Like, what if that's... <laughs> it's the equivalent of I, yeah. the groundskeeper. Why, he died 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, boy. So I might just not mention it. I in think... The, you know, just... I just... Yep. You're lost. <laughs> Go... Away. That's what you taught me, right? Yep, that's it. You're on the you're somewhere else. I mean, I'm just You're in the wrong place. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put the crystals now. (laughs) I'm just putting a little lineup of them. Just we're gonna be fine. We're gonna be fine. fine. Everything's good. This (laughs) this is gonna be (laughs) this is gonna be one of the most roller coaster things we've ever done because again, I've been in a real weird headspace all week doing this and I haven't had time to look it over. <laughs> so, oh, <A> weird. <laughs> yes. Well, oh, fuck. Well, that's the title of my book. <laughs> you always come up with the best titles for the book that doesn't exist. Well, yet. 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 All right. So this episode will contain mentions of suicide and spousal abuse. So a trigger warning right off the top. For those who need it. Edward, Edward Warren Miney was born September 7th, 1926 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. At the age of five, Edward started to notice weird things happening in his home. Objects flew around, fog rolled in on the floor as it got incredibly cold. Ed also saw random shadows and heard footsteps at all hours of the day. He said that once his closet door opened, and when he looked inside, he saw the face of an old woman in the darkness. Ed mentioned all of this to his father, Frank, who said, quote, There is a logical reason for everything that happens in this house. The problem for Ed was his father never told him what that reasonable explanation was. I love that that's how, that's how you talk to kids. You're like, it's perfectly fine. It's so natural. It's just a thing. And then it's like, well, what is it? And you're just like... 
it's perfectly fine. It's like, because you just don't know, you don't know what to say. Parents don't yeah. always know what to say. Uh, in 1944, while working as an usher at the Colonial Theater, 16-year-old Ed met 16-year-old Lorraine Morin, who would visit the theater every Wednesday with her mother. After a few weeks, Ed offered to walk Lorraine home, and on the walk, he officially asked her out. Lorraine Rita Moran was born January 31, 1927, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Around the age of nine, Lorraine was able to see light surrounding people, which she thought that just everyone can do, so she didn't think that was anything special. Years later, Lorraine would learn that those lights represented people's auras. The first time Lorraine met Ed, she said, quote, The night I in was introduced to him, I saw a 16-year-old athletic young man standing in front of me. But then I flashed forward, glimpsed the future, and saw a heavier, graying man, and I knew this was Ed at a future date. I also knew I would spend my entire life with him. Lorraine attended the prestigious Laurelton Hall Catholic Girls' School and remained a devout Roman Catholic for the rest of her life. Ed enlisted in the United States Navy on his 17th birthday in 1945, and after basic training, Ed was assigned to a ship aiding Allied forces in the Pacific. Just four months into his deployment, the ship he was on collided with an oil tanker. The crew were all forced to jump overboard and await a rescue ship. As per Navy protocol, the men were all given a 30-day pass known as survivor's leave. So when Ed returned to Connecticut, he suggested that he and Lorraine get married. The couple married May 22, 1945, and remained married until Ed's death in 2006. Which is beautiful. Is it a truly lovely story? Of course. Lovely or not, here comes a Because I'm a Stickler side note. Every resource that I could find says that Ed was born in 1926, Lorraine was born in 1927, and they met when they were 16. I've seen interviews where Ed and Lorraine corroborate all of this. The thing is, the math doesn't add up, because they both would have been 16 in early 1943. Further proof of this claim is Ed enlisted in the Navy on his 17th birthday in 1945. But if he was born in 1926, like every resource claims, that would mean Ed turned 17 in 1943. And if that's true, that means Ed would have been born in 1928, not 1926. I also think Lorraine was closer to 1929 as opposed to 1927. But why lie about their ages? The best guess I can come up with is that Ed first lied about his age to enlist in the Navy, and during his leave, when they decided to marry, I think they both lied about their ages because they weren't legally old enough to get married. Because if they were really born in 1928 and 1929, respectively, that means Ed and Lorraine were 16 when they got married in 1945. Interesting. So, so in that respect, I guess it makes sense. So because I'm me and I can't let anything go, I searched through the National Archives and found not one but two records of Ed Warren being enlisted. Both records have the same social security number, same parent's name, everything. The only difference was the year of birth. In one, he is listed as 1924, and in the other, 1926. The 1924 record claims that Ed enlisted in 1941 which would have made him 17. 
But if he was 17 in 1941, then how did he meet Lorraine in 1944 when he was 16? So you see why <laughs> this hurts my brain so much? It doesn't make any sense. I have to move on. I just didn't <laughs> want people to think I was bad at math or dates. Of course. Are the ages relevant to this story? No. Was this all simply because I hate inaccuracies? Absolutely. Of course. So January 11th, 1946, the couple welcomed a daughter, Judy. Ed was discharged from the Navy shortly after the end of World War II and returned home in the summer of 1946. While looking for work, Ed ended up attending Perry Art School. Two years later, Ed dropped out of school and the family toured around Connecticut, Vermont, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, selling Ed's paintings, which mostly featured landscapes. In 1952, he heard about a house that was haunted, so they traveled to the house, even though uh, Lorraine was a skeptic at the time. They stood outside briefly while Ed sketched the house. Then they approached the homeowner, offered the sketch as a gift in exchange for them touring the house. There is no word as to what they found when they got inside, but Lorraine said if they ever found something compelling, they would later make a painting of the house that would go into their collection. The Warrens spent five years traveling the country, painting and inspecting haunted houses. But that's all it took for the couple to become hooked on the paranormal. That same year, they formed the New England Society for Psychic Research. At first, the goal was to simply investigate hauntings, but over time, it, took br it broadened to include exorcisms to rectify negative supernatural events. A variety of people are used by the society in their investigations, and that includes nurses, doctors, researchers, college students, police officers, and members of the clergy. According to their website for the society, the Warrens have said that their hope was to deliver the message to the world that, quote, the devil exists, God exists, and for us as people, our very destiny hinges upon which one we elect to follow. As of February 2022, the society is being run by the Warren's son-in-law, Tony Spera, who also operated the Warren's Occult Museum until its closure in 2019. Oof, that was a weird way of saying it. I don't think I've ever said 2019 before. It's always, nah, it's fine. Again, the energy, it's interesting. Uh, the museum was home to a variety of relics and artifacts that the Warrens had collected throughout their many years of paranormal investigation, which segues beautifully into us getting into it and looking at some of those very cases. Yes. Now, please keep in mind, dear listeners, that Ed and Lorraine Warren investigated thousands of cases, so I can't very well mention them all. I have done my best to choose a nice variety to share with you, starting with one of the oldest military, naval, or air academies in the world, West Point. Mm -hmm. It's a U.S. military academy that was founded in 1802. It occupies 16,000 acres, or 6,000 hectares, in Orange County, New York. Over the years, numerous cadets have said they feel like they're being watched, even though there doesn't appear to be anyone around. There were also documented accounts of cadets seeing apparitions in the middle of the night throughout the 70s. One such encounter occurred October 21st, 1972, in the North Barracks 47th Division. One male cadet woke from a deep sleep at 2 a.m. to see a ghost of a soldier extended out of a wall. The cadet screamed, but when his roommate woke up, the ghost vanished. 
The roommate said that he, quote, placed his hand on the wall where the figure had been, and the wall was extremely cold. Mm. Both cadets were assigned to new quarters. The apparition was described as a middle-aged soldier in an antique uniform from the 1830s with a musket and a handlebar mustache. Sightings of that very same ghost would be reported throughout the campus over the years. In one of the professor's quarters overlooking the Hudson River, several former cadets have claimed to have seen a ghost known as the Lady. The story goes that a professor and his wife lived there when she had became fatally ill in the 1920s. Her mother moved in with them to help take care of her, and it turns out that the husband and his mother-in-law fell in love. Uh, I love that I'm bothered by that. I'm bothered by that, I am. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a reasonable yeah. to be bothered by. Yeah. The young wife made her husband swear he would not marry her mother. But shortly after she died, like almost right after she died, he married the mother anyway. Oh, come on, man. Yeah. Professors and cadets have reported items thrown and turned upside down. A clock was frozen for years. A, uh, it abruptly chimed to life. One tenant heard, quote, horrendous sounds in the night like someone riding a big wheel across a wooden floorboard. The ghost occurrences got so frequent that the former wife's bedroom was sealed. It was not. It was reopened in the 1950s. A family with two young daughters then moved into the house from 1971 to 1975. Numerous times, the parents woke in the middle of the night to hear their eight-year-old daughter have a conversation with someone. When they went to check on her, they couldn't see anyone. So when they asked, the daughter said, I'm talking to the lady. Which we, we assume uh, was the, uh, the, the poor sweet <laughs> bride who died and then his, her mom hooked up with her husband, which is horrifying. It's bad. Uh, there were also occurrences of dogs barking at nothing in officers' quarters, an extra head appearing in a group photo, and a nighttime custodian quit his job after being thrown by a spirit in a building. Being thrown? Being thrown. No, 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 nope. that, no. Uh, I, I get why he quit and good for you. Yep. Good for you, sir. Uh, with ghostly sightings, it's no wonder that in October 1972, Ed and Lorraine Warren were invited to give a lecture at West Point. When they arrived, they were given a tour of the complex and then taken to Quarters 100, a white brick building that is the residence of the superintendent. The closer they got to the house, the more Lorraine began to tremble. She got chills and could hear what she believed to be, quote, the unmistakable keeping of troubled spirits. Turns out that many strange occurrences had taken place in the home over the past year. Most notably, numerous eyewitnesses claim to have seen what can only be described as a bed being stripped down by invisible hands. Even after being remade, an unforeseen force would rip the sheets off minutes later. The superintendent and his wife, as well as some of their past guests, had allegedly seen apparitions and objects move throughout the house. Some guests were staying in the house. They woke one morning to find a wallet that belonged to someone else in the house, carefully placed between them in bed. Wine bottles were known to be knocked onto the floor in the kitchen. There was a cutting board in the kitchen that had a wet spot on it about the size of a slice of bread right in the middle. The superintendent's wife said the spot never dries. 
Uh, but it's just always sopping wet. No matter how often the board was dried, regardless as to the method used, the spot remained wet and had so for months. So Lorraine started to go through quarters 100, room by room, listening for signs of spirits. She found nothing in the first three rooms. But when she got to the fourth room, her heart rate increased as she felt a pressure on her arm as though someone was gently poking her. It was then that Lorraine caught a glimpse of a figure, and a famous one, at that. Lorraine asked if President Kennedy had ever been in that room before, and she was told that the room she was standing in was the very room the president would stay in when he would visit West Point. As Lorraine continued down the hall, she sensed more presences. According to Lorraine, quote, The moment I walked into the master bedroom, I knew that this house had been was being troubled by a female presence. Lorraine wandered through the bedroom examining pieces of china when she saw the image of a very domineering, strong-willed woman. Quote, I left the room for a time and began walking around the rest of the house. The image of the domineering woman stayed with me, and I came to realize that it was she who was troubled, who troubled the air here, she who unmade the beds and tossed personal belongings around in the guest rooms. Another quote from Lorraine is, quote, she is not old, very domineering, athletically inclined, and not really quite a lady. I get a feeling of no man. If she had a husband, he was dominated while at home. West Point's superintendent took notes of everything Lorraine said so that he could ask the school librarian to search through the archives to find evidence of whether or not Lorraine was telling the truth. From the librarian's search, it is believed that domineering woman was an Irish cook named Molly who worked at Quarters 100 in the 1820s. Lorraine got another vision of a ghost. This time, it was a tall, slender African-American man in a gray uniform who seemed to carry a lot of fear and guilt. Lorraine believed his name was Greer. After the Warrens left, the West Point librarian searched the archives and found a few past cadets with the last name Greer. One in particular was Lawrence Greer, a former private in the 9th Cavalry who had been arrested for the death of another man. Greer escaped in June 1931 and was apprehended 10 months later near Albany. Greer was found guilty and sentenced to two and a half years of hard labor. The sentence was rejected as Greer was judged to be insane at the time of his trial. There is no record as to what happened to Lawrence Greer after that. Oh my God. So the Warrens started to get a reputation for paranormal investigating. So when people had a supernatural problem, the Warrens would come to the rescue. According to their daughter, Judy, when people called asking for help, Ed and Lorraine would drop everything and go. Their daughter also wanted it specifically stated they would also never ask the people for money. They made money a lot of other ways, (laughs) neither here nor there, but they did not go in there going, hey, I want money. I mean, if it turned out to be like a really fantastic paranormal thing, would they write books on it and make money? Yeah. (laughs) Right. So they weren't hurting for money is my point. But they also didn't say, we'll only come if you pay us. Got that the people ne- the whoever's house they went to they would never just outright give them money for it. Right. So one of these calls came from Jerry and Laura Gooden in the Warrens' hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut. In November 1974, the Goodens experienced weeks of paranormal activity at their home at 966 Lindley Street. 
furniture knocked over, the recliners all opened and closed on their own, dishes and knives flew across the room. The Goodens first called the police, and the first officers on scene reported witnessing furniture and the refrigerator move while their back was turned. In a split second, firefighters were called in next and they witnessed TVs moving, pictures falling off the wall, and some even claimed to have seen the refrigerator levitate. Some people in the neighborhood started to get nervous about the idea of potential ghosts at the Gooden home, so they tried to set the house on fire. Thankfully, they were stopped <laughs> before it got too far. City engineers went to went in to see maybe if it was a potential gas leak or something, and when they witnessed the fridge move across the room on its own, they left. When Ed and Lorraine <laughs> yeah. arrived, Ed witnessed a plastic plastic crucifix on the wall burst. And within seconds, multiple people confirm watching a blister form on Lorraine's hand. Uh, she screamed. She said it felt like she had been burned. M- multiple of them watched this, like, just blister form. I can't even. So a priest was brought in. He agreed to perform an exorcism on the house the next day. But the exorcism was canceled when the police superintendent gave a press conference to say the entire thing was a hoax perpetrated by the Gooden's 10-year-old daughter, Marsha. One officer on scene claimed he saw Marsha trying to tip over a TV with her foot, and that when questioned, she confessed. And while I can be a skeptic at the best of times, how was a 10-year-old child capable of moving a refrigerator? And without anyone noticing? And how was one person capable of making three recliners open and close at one single time? Well, and how did the blister show up? that's my exact quote next. And how, oh, sorry. Did, the, how did the blister appear? No, see, you and I, same yeah. wavelength. And again, there were more than 77 credible witnesses, including firefighters, police officers, and investigators on scene who witnessed furniture flying across the room. A couch flew across the room, and somehow a child could pull that off? I'm not saying she didn't do any of it, but it just seems like way too much for one person, and some witnesses even claim that the things they saw were when Marsha either wasn't in the room or not at the house at all. So, interesting. for some background, the Goodens had a son with cerebral palsy who died at the age of six in 1967. The next year, they adopted Marsha. They said the strange things started happening after she moved in, But that, it came to a head in late 1974 when the police were called. The Warrens were furious that the exorcism was called off because they didn't believe that Marsha was responsible for all of it. But the police considered the investigation closed as Marsha had supposedly confessed and apologized. And yet the strange occurrences continued for weeks after the case was closed. Am I convinced that Marsha had some not-so-of-this-world help with her pranks? I do. Because for some reason, when it comes to ghosts, I'm pretty easy to believe. Aliens, <laughs> no. Ghosts, um, 100%. But also, I, I just, I can't with this. I can't, like, all of it was a kid? I I don't know. The fact that it started after she moved in and they're like, well, obviously that proves it's her. I'm like, or it proves that the first child who died is angry that he was replaced with another child. 
not that she replaced, but you know what, like an angry child spirit could feel. Yes, that. of course. So I get it. I get it. I feel like if I ever died in a horrific way, oh, I'm going to be vengeful. <laughs> I yeah. just, I feel it. I feel it. Um, so we're going to stay in the 1970s with this next one, which might be the biggest case that the Warrens have ever investigated. This case involved 112 Ocean Avenue, a large Dutch colonial house built in 1927 in Amityville on the south shore of Long Island, New York. It was called High Hopes. And a quick aside, Ocean Avenue makes me think of the band Yellow Card, and High Hopes makes me think of the band Panic at the Disco, and both of them have a very nostalgic place in my heart. So, hey. Yeah. I, uh, I love them both. I've been... Lucky enough, fortunate was the word I was looking for, uh, to see them both live in different moments. And uh, it was lovely. It uh, it takes me back. So, December 18th, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz, along with Kathy's three children, moved into the house. It was listed for $80,000, which is equivalent to about 418000 in 2022. And while that is a lot of money... Especially for the 70s, the house is a three-story waterfront home, five bedrooms, three and a half bathrooms, sits on 10,900 square feet. But despite the fact that the Lutz family got a great deal on the house, they left the house after just 28 days and never looked back. So what made them leave? For the sake of ease and time, we're going to do this in point form. They heard demonic voices. There were mysterious, foul odors throughout the house. They could see red, demonic eyes peering around corners. The front door would slam shut in the middle of the night. Hundreds of black flies appeared in an upstairs bedroom. Oh, my God. Black stains appeared on the inside of the toilet bowls and on the ceramic fixtures as though they'd all been painted. A large statue moved around the house on its own. Windows opened and closed for no reason. The screen door blew off the house without any wind. And as for effects felt physically by the family, all five of them started hallucinating. One of the children had his hand crushed. George felt a constant chill that wouldn't go away no matter how hot the house got. Kathy got strange welts all over her body. George would wake up every night at 3.15 a.m. One of the daughters began spending all of her time in her room, playing with an imaginary friend that she described as a red-eyed pig named Jody that nope. could transform its shape and size. No, no, nope. George woke up one night to find Kathy levitating over the bed. He tried to call a Catholic priest, and the phone cut out as soon as they connected. Oh my, yeah, run, run out of the house, go. Yeah. Go! On their last night in the house, furniture moved on its own, and there were banging noises that got so loud, it sounded like a marching band roaming the house. The children were so terrorized, the family grabbed a few belongings and headed to Kathy's mother's house, January 15th, 1976. They never set foot back in that house. But of course, people were skeptical about the Lutz family, and the public saw the whole thing as just a hoax. But in late February, Ed and Lorraine received a call from a TV producer who'd asked if they'd be willing to perform a seance at the Amityville home. The producer said 
that their station had brought in parapsychologists and psychic researchers to inspect the home uh, in the time since the Lutz family left, but no one had come up with any concrete answers. Lorraine would, wouldn't agree to a seance, but she did agree to investigate. So on March 6, 1976, Ed and Lorraine visited the house with a reporter and a crew from Channel 5 New York. When they first walked in, Lorraine noted, noticed that a crucifix had been turned upside down. She said, quote, that's almost always a sign that demons have begun to assert themselves. Assert themselves? Yeah, I did not like the way she put that either. No, no, ma'am. Yep. Lorraine said that she and Ed walked around and both felt like they were being physically pushed by an unseen force. Jesus. They noticed the house had been, quote, hastily evacuated. There was food in the cupboards, a gingerbread house on the dining room table, laundry folded on top of the dryer. The family left behind clothing, jewelry, family heirlooms, even family photo albums. So to me, and this is just my personal opinion, but... What did the Lutz family gain if this was just an elaborate hoax? They left behind almost everything they owned. Was the whole thing possibly embellished? Sure. But something made that family abandon that house. Ed and Lorraine held a seance with three other psychic mediums and members of the press. Several people became ill, and one of the camera operators clutched his chest and collapsed. Lorraine Warren suffered heart palpitations, which lasted for three weeks after they left the house. And one of the other psychics never stepped foot in another haunted house for the rest of her career. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. After visiting the house, Ed and Lorraine interviewed the couple, and it was said that George went from, quote, a rock-solid, hardworking man to a slob given to volcanic shifts of temper. And Kathy Lutz, quote, normally a very easygoing, pleasant person, found herself turning angry for no reason at all. During their investigation, a camera was set up to take a series of infrared time-lapse photos. In one of the photos, a boy with glowing eyes can be seen standing at the foot of the staircase. From the best I can tell, there were no children there at the time the photographs were taken. The Lutzes asked the Warrens to get the deed to the house while they were there, as neither George nor Kathy was ever going to go back inside that house. The family moved to California and let the bank foreclose on the house. Which again, what that does terrible things for their credit. Not <laughs> yes. to be not to be a nerd, but here yeah. we go. So what again, what did they gain from this? Uh, the Warrens planned to bring in a priest to perform an exorcism to clean the hut or to cleanse the house, but the Lutzes wanted nothing to do with the place. Now here is where we get into the horrifying backstory of 112 Ocean Avenue. Oh God! Around 6:30 p.m., November 13th, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald Defoe Jr. burst into Harry's bar, screaming, "Quote!" You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. Ronald and a small group of people went to the bar, went from the bar to the house, and found 43-year-old Ronald Sr. and 43-year-old Louise dead from gunshot wounds to the backs of their heads. One person from the group called the police, who arrived to find that all four of Ronald's siblings had also been shot in the backs of their heads. The siblings included 18-year-old Don, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John Matthew. 
all six victims had been shot with a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336C rifle around 3 a.m. Remember how when he was living in the house, George Lutz would always wake up at 3.15 a.m. for no reason? Yes. Yep. Well, just saying. God. The children had all been shot once, but the parents had both been shot twice. All were found lying face down on their beds. The family lived in that house since 1965. While sitting at the police station, Ronald told police he believed his family was murdered by a mob hitman named Louis Fellini, and that Fellini might come for Ronald next. He said he wasn't home at the time of the murders. Ronald then allegedly asked police how he could go about collecting his father's life insurance policy. Oh, my God. A day later, after police found a gun case for a thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle in Ro- Ronald's room, Ronald confessed to all six murders. And the alleged hitman Fellini, who I thought was totally made up, nope, he was a real man who was apparently out of state at the time. So he had an alibi, which is nice that the hitman... Had an alibi, but I bet it's it rare. was. It's I rare. bet it was another murder. Yeah. Uh, Ronald, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it wasn't. My if he's alibi good at his job. was that I was killing someone else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. if he's good at his job, it would have been. Uh, Ronald admitted to um, the murders, and then disposing of the bloody clothes, the rifle, the cartridges before going to work like it was a regular day. The trial began October 14th, 1975, with Ronald's lawyer attempting an insanity defense because Ronald only committed the murders because voices told him to do it. Then it was argued that Ronald was under the influence at the time as he was an avid user of LSD and heroin. A court psychiatrist found that Ronald suffered from antisocial personality disorder, but that he was fully aware of his actions at the time of the crime. So maybe Ronald was on some sort of substance that made him kill his family, or maybe it was simply a plot to get the life insurance, or maybe it was revenge over the fact that Ronald was physically abused by his father. Oh dear. One of Ronald's uncles recalled Ronald Sr. shoving Jr. into a wall when he was only two years old. Oof. So did years of abuse cause Ronald to snap? Maybe. But then why kill the siblings? Was it because Ronald was the firstborn and the only one his father seemingly took his rage out on? I could see that, too. Regardless as to the reasoning, a judge declared the crime to be, quote, the most heinous murders committed in Suffolk County since its founding. On November 21st, 1975, Ronald was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life in prison. In 1986, he claimed his sister Dawn had killed their father and that their mother became so distraught that she killed Dawn and the rest of the children. Ronald said he shot his mother, uh, he then he said that he originally admitted to the murders because he was afraid to say anything negative about his mother, as his father's uncle was a member of the Genovese crime family. Why? There might be something. <laughs> yeah. In 1990, Ronald claimed his sister Dawn and an unknown assailant killed his parents and that Dawn killed all the siblings. Ronald admitted he killed Dawn, but that it was an accident when they struggled over the rifle. He claims that he wasn't there at the time of the murders, as he was living with his wife, Geraldine Gates, in New Jersey. He claimed that his mother called him one night to ask if he could come and break up the fight between Dawn and their father, 
and he drove to the house with Geraldine's brother, Richard Raimondo. But it turns out, Richard Raimondo is not a real person, and Geraldine was married to someone else at the time of the crimes. Geraldine met Ron in 1985 when he was in prison, so I have no idea how that even happened, and then they got married in 1989 and then divorced in 1993, all while he was in prison. My point being, it doesn't make sense <laughs> that you're like, oh, I was married to her at the time. It's like, you married her 15 years after you committed the crime, man. There's, yeah, wait a it's, second. It's so obvious. Ugh. So Ronald tried to have his conviction overturned multiple times, but he was never successful. He died in custody March 12th, 2021, at the age of 69. And as a reminder of the timeline, the Lutz family moved in 13 months after the Defoe family murders and moved oh. out 28 days later, which is the name of an unrelated horror movie I will never see. Oh, it's good. I, I like bet. I bet. I like that eh, not my style, but I bet. Uh, Lorraine's quote about the case, quote, Amityville was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It followed us right straight across the country. I don't even like to talk about it. I will never go in the Amityville house ever again. You don't know how long my career is. That's the only one. Wow. Yeah. So the only one that really, really bothered her, apparently that one. Uh, George and Kathy Lutz's experience in the house inspired a 1977 best-selling novel written by Jay Anson, as well as a 1979 movie. There have since been 33 movies added to the Amityville Horror series between July 1979 and January 2022. Many of them seem to be limited theatrical releases or direct-to-video, but 33 movies in 43 years feels like a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, but hey, if people are into it, I'm happy they get the content that they want. But I can't talk about the movie franchise without talking about the 2005 remake starring Canada's darling, Ryan Reynolds. It was already in my notes. <laughs> I, I was gonna attempt to see it. Couldn't bring myself. Couldn't bring myself. I'll try again. I'll try again. Uh, since the Defoe murders, the house has been on the market four different times. It last sold in March 2017 for $605,000, wow. which is down from when it sold in 2010 for $950,000. I know. Uh, the house has since been completely revent renovated. Couldn't get, uh, no. Uh, and even the address has changed from 112 to 108, which isn't uncommon for a famous house to change numbers so that it can be more difficult to find by the looky-loos. Right. And that's how the locals like it, because it turns out that they do not appreciate the overwhelming attention that this case and the subsequent movies has brought to their area. They hate it so much, in fact, that the Amityville Historic Historical Society website does not mention the Defoe family murders or the month that the Lutz family lived in the house at all. I just need you to know what's happening over here. Sure. He <laughs> so jumped up and knocked over all of that water. There wasn't that much in there, more than I guess I thought. Anyway, it's just all over everything. So that's what I've been dealing with. I'm so <laughs> that's what the shuffling has been. I'm so sorry. No, no. I'm, 
I, I looked up. I'm like, oh, no, I bet it was the cat. And then I was oh. like, no, push ahead, push ahead. Push just ahead. Get- no, you're fine. It's just like, <sighs> it just makes sense again, this episode. He feels the energy, I swear to God. It's terrifying. Yeah, well. Yep. No. Uh, the reports that the Warrens wrote on the Amityville case led to the to them becoming a household name. Some aspects of their visit to the Amityville house were depicted in the opening scenes of The Conjuring 2 in 2016. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there another of their cases is the rest of The Conjuring 2, but we oh. will get we will get into that later on, you know. Okay. Okay. Well, listen. Yeah. I feel like um, this might be a good time to take a quick break as I, I just want to finish mopping up all of the water. Oh, he's throwing up now. So oh this my is God. just, is this demonic? Is this, is this the, is this the demons asserting themselves? Oh my God. I feel like it, it's him. It, there's something about him that is affected by these episodes because the last one we did, there was issues with the litter box. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to try and uh, just give my cat a quick exorcism. And we're going to be right back with more on Ed and Lorraine on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, Before the break, I was becoming sufficiently freaked out due to the (laughs) movements and actions of my cat. And for anybody who's watching at home, you'll be happy to know I've added just a small candle. (laughs) Just started burning a small white candle, uh, which feels like, you know, that's only going to bring positive energy uh, to to this house while we continue. So... Christy, where did we laugh off? Leave off in this horror parade. <laughs> well, we talked Amityville. Yes. Uh, and I, I'm going to switch it up for a sec to a, another one, and then we're gonna like get back into it. We're gonna we're again roller coaster of yep. weird. Say yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for that album to drop. It's going to be great. Yeah. So the next one is going to take us to the seaside town of Southend in Essex, UK in 1952. 
nine-year-old Bill Ramsey was playing outside in his backyard when a strange cold feeling came over him, causing him to break out in a cold sweat. The only thing he could think in that moment was wolves and running to the ocean. Wow. When Bill's mother called out to him, he became overwhelmed with an intense rage to the point where he uprooted a fence post with the fence still attached and started swinging the post around and neither of his parents could pull the post from his grip. Bill started gnawing at the wire mesh of the fence and let out a low growl. His terrified parents hid inside the house until Bill returned to normal hours later. For the next 15 years, Bill's life was relatively quiet. In 1967, Bill was a married mother, father of three, working as a carpenter. For the first two years of his marriage, Bill was plagued by intense nightmares that featured his wife. He would see his wife a few steps ahead of him, and when she would look back and see him, her face would be filled with absolute terror. Bill always woke up in a cold sweat, feeling uneasy and full of dread. The dreams continued for two years when they came to a sudden end. Once again, 15 years. No incidents. Then one night in 1983, Bill went out for drinks with some friends. He started to feel that same strange cold feeling from his youth. So he went to the bathroom and when he looked in the mirror, he saw a werewolf looking back at him. Oh my God. In his car ride home, Bill began to growl at his friends. His hands twisted into claws, and he tried to bite one of his friends on the leg. They stopped the car and had to wait several minutes before Bill calmed down enough to get him back inside the vehicle. Months later, Bill began to suffer from severe chest pains, so he went to the emergency room. While the nurse was in the middle of checking Bill's blood pressure, he sank his teeth into the nurse's arm and then started running around the room. Witnesses said that Bill's hands curled into claws, his shoulders hunched, and he bared his teeth like an agitated animal. Anyone who got too close to Bill was shoved aside with a seemingly impossible strength. It took multiple people to try and restrain him, and when he broke through a pair of handcuffs, a tranquilizer was needed to sedate him. Whoa! By the next morning... Bill had calmed down and returned to his regular state, so he went against medical advice and discharged himself. Two months later, he was back in the ER with the same chest pains. This time, Bill threw a nurse to one side and lunged at an orderly. Four police officers, who happened to be in the hospital at that time, surrounded Bill as he growled and snarled. He scratched and bit one of the officers, who ended up in the hospital due to his injuries. Oh my God. It took all four of them to get handcuffs on Bill. By the time they reached the police station, he had regained control, so he was released. <laughs> Which is a really relaxed attitude to have, Yeah. I guess. I guess. Uh, in the summer of 1987, Bill returned to the police station after seeing a teenage sex worker and making a citizen's arrest. Bill drove the girl to the station, and when an officer approached his vehicle, Bill felt that familiar tightness in his chest and threw the officer to the ground, choking him. 
It took 12 officers to hold Bill down and two tranquilizers to sedate him. Over the course of the next 10 days, Bill went through numerous x-rays, MRIs, and psychiatric tests to determine what was wrong with him. After seeing a story on the news about Bill, the Warrens reached out and invited Bill to the U.S., and with no clear sign in sight, Bill and his wife flew to Connecticut to see Ed and Lorraine in 1989. The plan was to have an exorcism performed by one of the Warrens' specialists, Bishop Robert McKenna. Half an hour into the exorcism, Bill's face contorted, his hands curled into claws. The bishop commanded the demon to leave. Bill flew into a rage, briefly returning then back to normal. The entire thing was allegedly recorded on film. I could not find it. I assume it hasn't been digitized. Uh, Bill Ramsey was last seen in public in 1992. He was happy to report that the Since the exorcism, there had been no more incidents. And since then, no other incidents have been recorded. Although, what happened 15 years after that, Bill? Yeah. (laughs) That was my question. But there is no current word on Bill's whereabouts. So we're just going to have to let that one sit and just not know what that's going to be. So just prior to the break... I mentioned the Amityville Horror, which is one of the most well-known horror movies to come from a case involving the Warrens. But I can't do an episode about the Warrens without talking about The Conjuring Universe, an American horror movie franchise which features dramatizations of actual cases investigated by Ed and Lorraine. The Conjuring is the main series in the franchise. It stars Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga as Ed and Lorraine, As of February 2022, there are three Conjuring movies, the first of which was released in 2013. The series also features spin-off films that focus on the origins of some of the entities that the Warrens have encountered over the course of their career. Those films include The Nun, The Curse of La Llorona, Annabelle, and two Annabelle sequels. As of February 2022, there are eight movies in the Conjuring universe, with at least two more set to come in the future. I will post a list of the movies in the series on our socials for any who are interested, as well as a list of the chronological viewing order, if you're that level, because I know I am. Of course. I I will admit, I have made my husband sit through the chronological order of Marvel, and it it was tough. That's long, it's isn't t- it? It's tough. Like, yeah. we, it was always, you know, we were really only watching, like, one every other night. But even then, it's like, oof. It's a lot. There's a lot of content there. and Yeah. You know, watch all of the Harry Potter movies in under 24 hours. Yes, please. Watch all of the mo- Marvel movies over the course of multiple weeks. Oh, exhausting. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Love the Marvel ones. Specifically Thor Ragnarok. Not the point. So... According to Wikipedia, the franchise has grossed a combined $2.1 billion with a combined budget of $178 million, making it the second highest grossing horror franchise. The number one spot, for those who are curious, Godzilla. Hey! With nearly $2.4 billion in worldwide box office revenue. There are so many ways that I could order this, so I'm going to choose to do it chronologically. Uh, starting in 1970 with a Raggedy Ann doll. 
a mother bought a vintage Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store for her daughter Donna's birthday. When she received the doll, Donna, who was a nursing student at the time, placed it on her bed in the small apartment that she shared with her roommate, Angie. A few days later, the friends noticed the doll started to make some small movements. Starting small with a change of position from the last time that they noticed it, to larger movements, such as they'd come home and find the doll in a completely different room. No. Sometimes, Don I know, right? Sometimes Donna even noted leaving the doll on the couch, and when she came home, she'd find it back on her bed with the bedroom door closed. A quote from Donna about it, quote, I put it on my bed each morning after the bed was made. The arms would be off to the sides and its legs would be straight out. But when we'd come home at night, the arms and legs would be positioned in different gestures. For instance, its legs would be crossed at the ankles or its arms would be folded in its lap. After a week or so, it made us suspicious. So to test it, I purposely crossed its arms and legs in the morning to see if it was really moving. And sure enough, every night when we'd come back home, the arms and legs would be uncrossed and the thing would be sitting in a dozen different positions. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Uh, a month into owning the doll, Donna and Angie started to find notes written on parchment paper that said, help us and help Lou. The handwriting was similar to that of a child, but the weirdest part was there wasn't even parchment paper in the home. So the what? woman, the women could not figure out where these notes were coming from. One night when Donna returned home to find the doll had once again moved to her bedroom, Donna became overwhelmed with fear. When she inspected the doll closely, she noticed what seemed to be drops of blood on the doll's hands and chest. Oh my god! Justifiably freaked out. <laughs> Donna contacted a medium who conducted a seance, where Donna was introduced to the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. Allegedly, Annabelle used to live in a house on the same land where Donna and Angie's apartment now stood. When Annabelle was seven years old, she was found dead in a field near her home. The medium claimed the spirit felt comfort and love with Donna and Angie, so they agreed to keep the doll. Stop it. No. Yeah, I know. No. It's, it's, it's screaming at the movie, don't go in the house. They went in the house. Yeah, exactly. They went in the house holding the hand of the ghost. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but Lou, a friend of Donna and Angie's, was less excited about the idea. Lou never liked the doll and had even gone so far as to tell Donna the doll was evil and they should get rid of it. One night, Lou woke from a deep sleep feeling like he was paralyzed. When he looked down, he saw the doll at his feet. No. The doll got into the bed and started choking Lou, who eventually passed out. I could not find if he was at his own place or if he was staying at the girl's apartment. I assume it was at the girl's apartment. Could be either way. But the next day, Lou and Angie were preparing for a road trip. They were the only two people home at the time, so the apartment was relatively quiet. Then they started hearing rustling sounds coming from Donna's room. So Lou went to check, but there was no one except the doll. As Lou approached the doll, he got the sense that someone was behind him, so he spun around quickly, but there was no one there. Suddenly, Lou felt an intense burning pain in his chest that caused him to double over. When he looked down, he had seven claw marks bleeding from his chest. Oh my god. After this, 
Donna finally agreed that maybe Annabelle's spirit wasn't as innocent as it seemed, so she contacted a priest named Father Hegan, who contacted Father Cook, who put Donna in touch with Ed and Lorraine Warren. After speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, the Warrens came to believe the doll was being possessed by an inhuman spirit. The Warrens believe there is a demonic underworld that is composed of human spirits and inhuman spirits. Human spirits are those who once had a corporeal existence on Earth, whereas inhuman spirits never actually lived in a physical body. And while human spirits can be either positive or negative in intent, inhuman spirits represent elemental forces, demonic powers, or even the devil. I can't. Yeah. According to Lorraine, <laughs> according to Lorraine Warren, quote, both can be extremely malicious and sometimes they even work together. Only the demonic, however, has the power to bring about such incredible negative phenomena as fires, explosions, dematerialization, teleportation, and levitation of large objects. More than that, in cases of possession, the spirit comes through very clearly. It says what it is. Sometimes it's call, it calls itself by name. If you listen to a tape recording of the possessed, you would have no trouble recognizing the difference between a human and an inhuman spirit. Ed Warren sees human and inhuman as simply a ghost versus a demonic spirit. He says, quote, a ghost may scare you, a demonic spirit will scare you and eventually threaten your life. In the early stages, the phenomena associated with both human and inhuman spirits may be the same. Both types of spirits will seek to make their presence known by manipulating the physical environment. The difference is the nature of the activity associated with each. As a rule, ghosts will do things to the house, while demonic spirits will do things to people. One tries to scare you out of the house, the other tries to scare you out of your mind. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Warrens believe that the demonic spirit was looking to move from an inanimate object to a human host, and that if this continued for a few more weeks, it's likely that one or both of the women would have died. They concluded that Father Cook should perform an exorcism to cleanse the apartment. According to Ed Warren, quote, uh, The blessing... Of the home is a wordy seven-page document that is distinctly positive in nature. Rather than specifically expelling evil entities from the dwelling, the emphasis is instead directed towards filling the home with the power of the positive. Donna asked that when the exorcism was over, that the Warrens take the doll with them. The doll was placed in a glass case and has been at the Warrens Occult Museum ever since. This case went on to inspire the 2014 movie Annabelle, which now has two sequels, Annabelle Creation and Annabelle Comes Home. So, creepy dolls aside, <laughs> Jesus. we're going to uh, look into a case that inspired the first movie in the entire franchise, the case of the Perrin family. In January 1974, the Perrin family, which consisted of Roger, Carolyn, and their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April, moved into a 14-room farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. As soon as the family moved in, they started noticing strange things happening in the house. They heard noises like the sound of something scraping against the kettle in the kitchen. They 
even though there was no one in the room, a broom that seemed to move around the house on its own, furniture would move across the floor unassisted, picture frames fell off the walls, the smell of rotting flesh permeated through the house, and the beds would shake every morning at 5.15 a.m. The family also claims to have experienced doors slamming, objects thrown across the room, glass shattering. Carolyn noticed small piles of dirt in the center of the just-swept kitchen floor. Anytime Roger would enter the basement, he said he could feel, quote, a cold, stinking presence behind him. The children claimed to have seen multiple apparitions, including a young boy wandering the house, moving their toys around, and a man with a crooked smile. Oh, God. Carolyn uh, looked into the history of the house and found that it had been in the Arnold family for eight generations, and that many of them had died under horrendous or mysterious circumstances, including murder, drowning, and hanging. Allegedly, the 93-year-old matriarch of the family hung herself in the barn while an 11-year-old girl was murdered in the house by a farmhand. Two people drowned in the creek behind the house, another hung himself in the attic, and four men mysteriously froze just outside the house. The parents reached out to Ed and Lorraine Warren, who then visited the house numerous times over the years. They believed the house was being haunted by the malevolent spirit of Bathsheba Sherman. In the mid-1800s, Bathsheba, who was believed to be a witch, lived on the property. Andrea Perrin said, quote, whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house, and she resented the competition of my, that my mother posed for that position. The story goes, side note, <laughs> Bathsheba Thayer was born in 1812 in Rhode Island. In 1844, Bathsheba married a man named Judson Sherman, who ran a produce business from his 200-acre farm. According to allthatsinteresting.com, Bathsheba was babysitting a neighbor's son when the boy was found dead. His skull had been impaled by some kind of small tool. Oh. For some reason, the case never went to court, even though Bathsheba was the last person to see the child alive. In 1849, Bathsheba gave birth to a son named Herbert, but a week after he was born, Bathsheba stabbed him with a sewing needle. Oh, it is said that her husband Judson witnessed the murder, and he claimed that Bathsheba vowed her allegiance to the devil before allegedly climbing a nearby tree and hanging herself. Now, it should be noted that according to Bathsheba's gravestone, her date of death is May 1885. So I don't know if the legend is the wrong dates or if the story about her taking her own life just wasn't true. Uh, it's also more than possible that these stories are made up after Bathsheba's death and that she was incorrectly labeled as a witch all those years ago. It should be stated for the record, witches are badass and I just dig that energy. <laughs> <laughs> Something about their energy I can't help but respect. So Judson Sherman died in 1881. Some claim the couple had three children and that none of them lived past the age of seven. Oh, my God. But there are no records that can confirm this. To try and convince the spirits to leave, Lorraine conducted a seance during which Carolyn became possessed. 
The oldest parent-daughter, Andrea, claims to have secretly witnessed the seance, saying, quote, I thought I was going to pass out. My mother began to speak a language not of this world in a voice not her own. Her chair levitated, and she was thrown across the room. At the end of the seance, when Carolyn returned to her usual state, Roger kicked the Warrens out of the house. Due to financial issues, the family was forced to stay in the house until June 1980. It is believed the house had also been haunted by numerous spirits, including a young girl who was murdered in 1849. Oh, my God. And seven soldiers. So Current specific. owners of yeah, right? Current owners of the house have claimed to have heard footsteps, doors opening, and knocks. They have also seen lights flashing in rooms that don't have a light to begin with. Oh. The parents' story was depicted in The Conjuring in 2013, the very first movie in the franchise. Did you t- put the candle in? I did. did you- I, okay. I, I bl- it accidentally blew oh, up with my breath. I, I, I was going to I was like, "Oh shit, did it go out on its own?" Oh, God. We're fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, So the next case takes us to Enfield, London, England, at a house at 284 Green Street. In August 1977, Peggy Hodgson, a single mother of four, heard a noise and went upstairs to investigate. She assumed that her daughters were roughhousing. But when she opened the door, she found the girls in the corner of the room frozen in terror. They claimed that the dresser had moved towards them. Peggy really just thought, yeah, right, because, you know, she's an adult. Mm -hmm. And then the dresser started to move towards her as if pushed by an unseen force. Peggy tried to move the dresser back, but couldn't push it by herself. Peggy called the police, and when an officer arrived on scene, he claimed to have seen a chair move clear across a room, and then said, oh, yeah, this isn't a police matter. (laughs) Always helpful. (laughs) Things ramped up, and soon there were loud knocking noises, disembodied voices, overturned chairs, thrown toys, and even some of the children levitated. Over the course of 18 months, more than 30 people, including neighbors, journalists, and psychic researchers, claim to have seen objects thrown across a room, heavy furniture moving on its own, and the children levitating several feet off the ground. Investigators from the Society for uh, Psychical Research inspected the helm and claimed more than 2,000 incidents of supernatural activity, including fires igniting, voices, furniture turning over, and levitation. Ed and Lorraine investigated the case and visited the house in 1978. They were convinced that paranormal activity was to blame. According to Ed, quote, those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it. And while some members, um, of the other society believe that the haunting was real, there are others who believe it was a hoax. One of the daughters, 11-year-old Janet, was caught banging a broom handle on a ceiling and bending spoons. And both Janet and her 13-year-old sister Margaret openly admitted to pranking journalists when they would come to the house. But they are both adamant that they were not responsible for all of the occurrences. I'd also like to know how they moved, like, heavy furniture Yeah. Again, we're back to how did a child move heavy furniture without an adult noticing. Right. Uh, Both girls claim to be traumatized to this day from the haunting. So I guess 
You have to decide for yourself whether or not you believe that it was the work of preteens or something supernatural. The Warrens' investigation of the Enfield poltergeist is depicted in the 2016 movie The Conjuring 2. Mm. Now we're going to skip ahead to 1981 and a case in Brookfield, Connecticut. After a night of drinking and partying on February 16th, 19-year-old Arnie Johnson stabbed his landlord, Alan Bono, to death with a five-inch pocket knife. It was the first murder in Brookfield's 193-year history. Prior to the incident, Arnie didn't have a criminal record. He was arrested for first-degree murder. Before we can get into the crime, we have to go back to the summer of 1980. 11-year-old David Glatzel, the younger brother of Arnie's fiance Debbie, claimed he encountered an old man who taunted him. The encounters started to happen more often and became increasingly more violent. David would wake up crying hysterically, describing visions of, quote, a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. It should be noted that no one else was able to see the man and that he seemed to be some sort of apparition that only David could see. The family described David's actions as, quote, he would kick, bite, swear, spit, terrible words. He experienced stra- strangling attempts by, vis- by invisible hands, which he tried to pull from his neck, and powerful forces would flop him rapidly head to toe like a rag doll. David started having seizures, speaking in strange voices, and even hissing. Psychiatrists reviewed the case, and they believed all of David ac- David's actions were the result of a learning disability. Oh, come on now. Yeah, yeah. They requested a priest to come and bless their home, but nothing seemed to help. Three separate exorcisms were conducted, uh, where those present claimed to see David curse, levitate, and then stop breathing. None of the priests ever admitted to the exorcisms, but the church did confirm the priests had helped David during a difficult time. Oh, boy. The priests were not allowed to speak publicly on the matter. Ed and Lorraine Warren finally got involved in the case, and they believed that David was possessed by a demon. So in October 1980, Arnie, who tried to help the family with David, tried a new tactic to taunt the demon out of David. He begged the demon, quote, Take me on. Leave my little buddy alone. Despite a warning from the Warrens, Arnie then visited a well where David first encountered encountered the apparition. Arnie later claimed to have seen a demon hidden deep within the well. Prior to the murder, Arnie was a tree surgeon at Wright Tree Service, and Alan Bono owned a dog kennel where Arnie's fiancée Debbie worked. Arnie would often call in sick to work to spend the day with Debbie at the kennel, and he did so on February 16, 1981. At the kennel that day was Arnie, Alan, Debbie, Debbie's co-worker Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Alan offered to take the group to lunch at a local bar. Afterwards, the group started to drink heavily. Everything said the group, I need to believe, not the nine-year-old. Right, of course. But... But they never said that, so I I don't know. They all returned to the kennel when Debbie took Wanda and Mary to get pizza. When they returned around 6.30 p.m., 
Alan, who was incredibly intoxicated, had become agitated. Debbie urged everyone to leave the room, but Alan grabbed onto Mary and refused to let her go. Arnie ordered Alan to let Mary go. Wanda tried to pull the two men apart when Arnie started to growl like an animal. He pulled out a pocket knife and stabbed Alan repeatedly. Alan sustained four or five major wounds, including one that stretched from his stomach all the way up to the base of his heart. Jesus. Arnie was found two miles or 3.2 kilometers away from the kennel and was taken to Bridgeport Correctional Center. Police believe that Arnie had killed Alan due to an argument over Debbie. But both the Warrens and the Glatzel family believe the demon had accepted Arnie's offer and taken over his body. Arnie's fiance said, quote, You never challenge the devil. Arnie started showing the same signs my brother did when he was under possession. The day after Arnie's arrest, Lorraine Warren told the police that Arnie had been possessed at the time of the crime. The police refused to take the idea seriously. The trial started October 28, 1981, with Arnie's lawyer trying to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of demonic possession. Oh, wow. The judge immediately rejected the idea, saying there is no possible evidence that could prove such a plea and that it would be irrelative and unscientific to allow related testimony. After inspecting the victim's clothing, Arnie's lawyer argued that the lack of any tears, rips, or blood supported his claim of demonic possession. But when that didn't work, his lawyer had to resort to a plea of self-defense. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over the course of three days, which is five times longer than what the OJ jury did, but neither here nor there. Great point. Um, They convicted Arnie of first-degree manslaughter on November 24th, 1981. Arnie was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. During his time in prison, Arnie and Debbie were married in 1984. For being a model prisoner, Arnie Arnie was released in 1986 after serving just five years. Arnie and Debbie remained married until her death. At some point in the last few years, I couldn't find the exact date, the couple had two children together. Arnie Johnson's story is depicted in The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which was released in 2021. Hmm. Now, for the last investigation that we are going to look at, we're going to step outside the Conjuring universe and look at the small town of Easton, Connecticut. In Easton sits Union Cemetery which has graves dating back to the 1600s. One of the cemetery's unmarked graves are said to be the resting place of the White Lady. Oh, boy. In life, it is believed she was a woman in her mid to late 20s who died during childbirth. In death, she is said to roam the road along Route 59. The White Lady is said to be a woman in a white gown and bonnet with long, dark hair. Multiple people claim to have seen her wandering through the cemetery and along the road. In 1993, an off-duty firefighter was traveling home when he believes he hit the white lady. When he got out of the car, there was no sign of anyone around, and yet his car suffered a large, unexplainable dent. Oh, wow. Numerous people have called the police over the years claiming something similar, but when the police arrive, there's no one else there. 
According to their website, the Warrens claim to have, quote, successfully captured photo and video footage of the White Lady at both the Union Cemetery as well as the nearby Stepney Cemetery in Monroe, Connecticut. The concept of the White Lady can be found all over the world, which leads me to an international White Lady side note, (laughs) which sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. Yeah. The apparition is always described as wearing white and seen endlessly roaming in a rural area. Many of the legends about her include the fact that there is some sort of loss, betrayal, or unrequited love linked to her. The legend can be found in at least 17 countries all over the world, including Germany, Malta, Philippines, Switzerland, Brazil, and Japan, just to name a few. There is a white lady legend near Quebec City in Canada. The story goes that the woman whose fiancé died in battle in 1759 jumped off the top of Montmorency Falls while wearing her wedding dress. A small waterfall in the area was named White Lady Waterfall in her honor. In Thailand, the legend goes that a group of teenagers all died from random accidents shortly after visiting a deserted house in a Bangkok suburb. Witnesses claim to have seen a mysterious woman in white with long, dark hair before each of the kids' accidents. In Estonia, the white lady is said to be found in the, oh boy, uh, Hapsalu Castle. Legend goes that the lady and a priest fell in love, so the lady hid in the castle as a choir boy, but when she was discovered, she was immured in a wall of the chapel. Essentially, they put her in a wall and then just sealed it, leaving her to die of starvation or dehydration, whichever occurred first. Jesus. People claim to have seen the white lady looking down from one of the chapel's windows, grieving for her love. In Hampshire, southeast England, the white lady is said to haunt the Porchester Castle after she jumped off the castle to save her falling child. In Serbia, there's a legend of a woman in white, or more specifically, a woman in a wedding dress that roams at night. There are two stories about her death— One believes the woman died in a car accident in the 70s while going on her honeymoon. The second believes she took her own life after her fiancé left her at the altar. A white lady is said to haunt a park in Rochester, New York. Witnesses claim to have seen a woman in white who wanders the park looking for her daughter who had been murdered by her boyfriend. Legend says the woman died of a broken heart. Mm. And fun fact, the pilot of an episode of our much-beloved TV show Supernatural features a white lady, although the show, she is referred to as Woman in White. So, the is the white lady fated to roam the cemeteries in Connecticut? Or could there be another explanation? One woman claims to be the real white lady, Ed claimed to have caught a video of the White Lady in the Union Cemetery in the summer of 1990, but Judith Penny claims that she donned a white sheet while Ed filmed her. Oh! Judith Penny, who I will refer to as Penny so as to not confuse her with the Warren's daughter, Judy, (laughs) Penny also claims 
she was in an extramarital relationship with Ed Warren for decades, and that not only did Lorraine know about it, but she was supportive of it. Interesting, the plot thickens. Mm -hmm. In the early 1960s, Ed worked a day job as a bus driver when one day he met 15-year-old Penny on her way to school. Ed was in his 30s. Penny was was 15. Yeah. Penny claims the two began a romantic relationship. Penny claims she met Ed in the early 1960s He was in his 30s. She was just 15. As Penny didn't have anywhere else to go, she allegedly moved into the Warrens' house in 1963. What? And stayed for the next 40 years. (laughs) I wish that I was kidding in some sort of way. Oh, no, you've frozen. Well, I want to say welcome back, dear listeners, but what they don't (laughs) realize is is that we've been... (laughs) Is that we're back. Um, is that we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what it is. <laughs> we have not had mm-hmm. a Zoom video drop, a Zoom call drop, legitimately since the last time we did something paranormal. Yep. <laughs> yep. And mm-hmm. Christy literally said, and she stayed for the next 40 years and everything just like shut down on my yep. end anyway. You froze. So anybody watching the video is going to see me going, oh, oh, you're, oh, you're frozen. I, I'll just stop things like very, very dramatically, very like flames. Yeah. Just, that but, feels, you know, that feels less terrifying or <laughs> slightly less terrifying than what happened for me, which was you said you literally went and she stayed for the next 40 years. Boop. And it just the, the screen just disappeared. Zoom just disappeared. I've never seen that happen before. Normally, when this has happened before, it's paused, but I've yeah. never seen it just disappear. And then a couple minutes later, it was like, oh, Zoom quit unexpectedly. <laughs> I was like, no shit. Anyway, the candle is not due. I need to get a bigger candle, maybe. I mean, this is... <laughs> I counted on you. Yeah. It's weird. Look, here's the thing. Dear listeners, we know that you you all like the paranormal stuff, but I, I'm going to have to say right now, like, I might have to put, put up a boundary. I can't live like this. This is terrifying. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lie. lie. Only because the last time we did this, we and we I love that we forgot about it until we got back to this moment. And it was like, we did have problems. A lot of problems that last time. Like, huh, we did say we weren't going to do these again. Huh. <laughs> huh. And then if we had gotten through this with no hiccups, I think I might be in a different place. But right now, what I'm going to say is, is that until further notice, double stampsies, no more. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. I'm not built for I get it. it. No, it's for this. it's it's. What are the odds that those are the ones, the episodes you're doing, uh, that all of a sudden there's, you know, pet issues or like incredibly loud noises coming from, hopefully the other side and not inside my walls. <laughs> Maybe oh. I just need to hold these crystals <laughs> for the rest of this. You need to get your fanny pack out. Pack them up. Well, listen, yeah. let's get back into it, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. so terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So terrifying. Uh, we were talking about uh, Judith Penny. 
Sure. And how she met Ed in the early 1960s when Ed was in his 30s and Penny was just 15 years old. Thank you for number checking that for us again because it is truly horrifying. It is. Uh, As Penny didn't have anywhere else to go, she allegedly moved in with the Warrens in 1963. I'm just going to hit it and run. Yep. And stayed for the next 40 years at first. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. See, if you don't put dramatic emphasis on it, the ghost is fine. At first, Penny was given a bedroom across the hall from Ed and Lorraine, but eventually they built an apartment upstairs for Penny, and Ed would then spend one night upstairs with her and one night downstairs with Lorraine. Original sister wives, I guess. Right? Some kind, yeah. Uh, Penny also claims that someone reported their relationship to the police, and Penny was arrested. Although I'm not sure why the child would get arrested and not the man, but that's another story. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Penny said that she spent a night in the North End prison, where police tried to convince her to sign a statement admitting to the affair. When Penny refused to sign, she was forced to report to a delinquent youth office for a month. Ed picked her up from school and took her to her mandated meetings. Penny said she she was often introduced as the Warrens' niece, She also claims that in 1978, she became pregnant with Ed Warren's child and that they told her to tell people that someone broke into her apartment and raped her. Oh, my God. She refused. And then, according to Penny, allegedly... She had an abortion. Of course, we have no way of knowing for sure. Of course. But I'm just saying. Uh, In other shocking claims, Penny also said that Ed was abusive towards Lorraine, saying, quote, sometimes Ed would actually have to slap her across the face to shut her up. Some nights I thought they were going to kill each other. And if you're thinking, wouldn't Ed and Lorraine's daughter have noticed anything? And the answer is no. Because according to their daughter, Judy... She said that due to her parents' demanding work schedule, Judy lived with her grandmother while growing up. So let me get this straight. Yeah. Judy, their child, yes. was shipped off to live with the grandmother yes. so that they could tour the country slash world and do their paranormal work. Yes. So then he found a child, a 15-year-old child, also named Judith, and brought her into the home and started a rela- physical relationship with her. Yes. I mean, this is, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't see this turn coming. I'm going to be I, well, honest. That, there's a reason I put it at the end. Yep. Um, I will say allegedly, because, you of know. Of course. Yes. I, uh, what I fear more than ghosts are lawyers. Litigation. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, their daughter, Judy, did admit that her parents let Penny move in, but says she was 18 and had nowhere else to go. Okay. She claimed Penny had a rough childhood and that she was brought in to care for the house while Ed and Lorraine were traveling for work. Lorraine said they went on the road probably 10 months a year, but that they made sure that they were home one weekend every month. I find it interesting that this has come out about people who describe themselves as a very religious family. And since both Warrens have since passed, all we have to go on is Judith's sworn statement. It was a sworn statement that she gave about this entire relationship. I'm a believer in believing women when they come forward, but also according to the Hollywood Reporter, quote, 
Mr. Warren has been accused of being cut from the same cloth as Jerry Sandusky and Bill Cosby. Oh, dear. Not great company to be in. Not great. Something worth noting is that when Lorraine agreed to the Conjuring series using their stories and their names, she said yes on the condition that the films don't show her or Ed engaging in crimes like sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault, and that neither could be shown participating in an extramarital sexual relationship. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be a very specific list, especially when their lives allegedly involved most of those things. (laughs) Well, again, if someone came to me and was like, we want to make a story about your life, I don't know that what I would come back with is any of those things. I would none of those things would enter my mind if I was like, what would I like them to cut out? No, again, none of that, because none of that would be relevant to me. Like the fact that that was her initial response before they were even coming to her with those yeah. allegations. Correct. Oh, Correct. my God. The, the allegations didn't even come out until around the time the first movie had come out. So I find it interesting. But, you know, yeah. uh, Judith Penny and Ed Warren allegedly ended their relationship in 2003 but remained friends until his death a few years later. Ed and Lorraine's daughter, Judy, is now married to a man named Tony Spera. They currently run the New England Society for Psychic Research and the Occult Museum until it closed. Throughout their careers, Ed and Lorraine wrote several books about some of the cases that they've done, and both taught courses on demonology at Southern Connecticut State University. In the 1970s, Lorraine was tested at UCLA, where her clairvoyance was judged as, quote, being far above average. Ed Warren died on August 23, 2006, following complications from a stroke. He was 79. He was described as good-natured, calm, and according to author Gerald Brittle, quote, he exudes the air of confidence one finds in people who have learned what they know the hard way. Confident man with complicated relationships, we'll say. Yeah. Lorraine Warren was featured on 30 episodes of the A&E show Paranormal State and consulted on The Conjuring movies prior to her death on April 18th, 2019. She was 92 years old. Lorraine's son-in-law said, quote, Lorraine touched many lives and was loved by so many. She was remarkable, loving, compassionate, and giving soul. The, the closeness... Between them and their son-in-law is wild when it's like there's not a closeness really between them and their daughter. But that is interesting. That son-in-law came in and was like, I'm into this world. I want in. I love all of this. And then just uh, he just went full in, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Whether you're a believer or not, it's hard to explain every single event in this episode. Maybe some of it was a hoax, but maybe there was something to be said for the Warren's abilities. And maybe some of those abilities and experiences were embellished a bit, but I'd like to believe that at the heart of it, there was some truth to it. Ed and Lorraine brought the paranormal to the forefront of the public consciousness. They were subjected to ridicule for their belief in the supernatural, and yet they never backed down. They were dubbed supernatural seekers and considered to be pi- are considered to be the pioneers in the field of paranormal. And if this means that they are in some way they've paved the way for the supernatural TV show to be a thing, then the Warrens have my gratitude. 
Carry on my wayward son. Reporting for truth. Pay- oh, sorry. I thought we were going to keep going. Yep. No, we I can't pay think for we that. Could we can't it. pay for that. I no, didn't no, think no, we no. could afford it. No. Uh, I just rep- felt like, you know. Sorry. I, you're, gonna, you're trying to sign off. Go ahead. Reporting for true crime and cocktails. I'm your spooky bitch, Christy. <laughs> <laughs> this whole episode was worth it for that. Oh, wow. Oh. We're all over the place. I don't even know anymore. Listen, um, you spooky bitch, my fave. Uh, <laughs> I have so many thoughts about all of this. Uh, yeah. The, the number one being that I'm terrified in my own home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've put you in a negative place. It's okay. It's cool. It's, okay. it's cool. Again, I just thought the crystals might do more, but maybe I'm. <laughs> they do need to be charged. There's a full moon tomorrow, so that's uh, that's all part of it. Um. Maybe I need to get more for protection. This is not a conversation I need to have in real time. Um, <laughs> look, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's take one more quick break. Then we're going to come back. We're going to give you our thoughts, my thoughts, my theories. And then we're going to put paranormal cases to bed <laughs> on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, before the break, I was just talking about my, (laughs) my fear in my own home. It's just, again, we know that there's been, look, I wasn't going to get into this. (laughs) (laughs) We know that there's been, I've talked about how I thought I had a ghost in my house. I've talked about this on the show, right? Yes. This is not a surprise to anybody. Correct. Because there is a cupboard here and, and I'll get to my thoughts. This all connects is the point, obviously. But there, I have this glass, um, like, china cabinet, and there's a light inside that can only be turned on from the inside. And for, like, a month and a half, I would come in the room, and it would be on, and no one's been in there. No one's touched it. Again, you have to open the door to turn it on. But then one day, it just stopped, which for me was, like, further, like, proof that it's like, no, no, that was something because it went on for a period of time and then it just stopped. It's not like it's a faulty wire or something like that. Right. Since then, there's been other things happening, and I haven't been telling anyone. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. But there's been some things that have happened. And let's just say I've been woken in the night a few times. Mm. And in the night, I have been yelling for it to leave. So I think that also with the stuff that's happening right now, I'm just on edge. I'm just on edge. Yes. I'm just on edge. And I'm going to have to look into protection candles and 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 cr- what what crystals can I get that might might help that because I feel like that's just where we're at. Anyway, so again, like I said, enjoy this last bit of this episode, folks, because it's going to be a while <laughs> before you get another one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, listen, I'm fascinated by this stuff. I believe in all of this stuff. But I think the, the big problem for me is just that, again, I... I do feel like I'm attuned to it, and I feel like we've yeah. been given proof now that any time we've done one of these episodes, we've had an issue, so. Mm-hmm. And I bid you adieu. Okay, so. <laughs> All right, my notes, though. Um, okay, interesting business model that it was like, I am going to go to your house, sketch it, and then ring the doorbell and be like, hey, do you want this sketch? Can't have it unless I can look around your haunted house. Like, that's an interesting. Yeah way of of pre- presenting yourself and uh, I know that they didn't charge money for their like um you know sessions or whatever if they were going to help people but it's interest it's just an interesting again it feels very much if someone came to my door and was like hey I've sketched your house can I come in I would be like where's the mace where's the pepper spray like oh my god no yeah um, so I'm surprised yeah. that it worked again I know it was a different time but I just thought that that was interesting um you the first time you said apparitions and then you said it so many times every time you said it in this episode all I could think was apparitions <laughs> shout out Matthew Goodband oh, another yeah. Canadian band yes uh, so talented Next thing, you said there was a ghost with a handlebar mustache. I wrote down that shouldn't sound hot to me. Oh, my God, I am becoming Blanche. <laughs> this. This right here. This is my this is my favorite moment, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's finally That happened. shouldn't sound hot is one of the greatest <laughs> quotes I've ever heard. A ghost with a handlebar mustache. That shouldn't sound hot. Um, but yet, here we are. Yeah. Uh, now, the lady. You brought up one of the stories about the lady, about the, the gentleman who married his mother-in-law. Well, yeah. I have heard about this in real life. I don't want to get into detail because I don't want to expose anyone. Sure. But there was someone that I have known of who was very young and like a teen gal yeah. dating an older older guy, early 20s. Um, felt like it was on the cusp, like not mm. not technically legal. I think she was old enough, but not, but mm. still in a zone that was like, I don't know. Sure. They did break up and he he did leave her for her mother. And they stayed together. They might be together to for for good. Like I I don't know what the latest is, but yeah. So when you said that, I was just like, man, that is fascinating. Um, oh, and I guarantee, had uh, Brittany Murphy's husband lived, I guarantee. Oh, that yeah. he would have suddenly been a marriage. He was. He already was in a crouch to get down on a knee with that woman while he was yeah, alive. He was. Now, here's something that I find so interesting, and this is more just a comment on the world, because we know that this stuff was happening in, like, the 70s, 80s, right? Mostly the yeah. 70s, I feel like, was their heyday. And it's so interesting that, like, they got famous for this before the internet. Again, that it was like, if you had a problem, call Ed and Lorraine, and it's like, how does that work? How does that phone number get passed around? Like, we, I, it's hard yeah. for me to even wrap my head around what the world was 
pre-internet. Oh, um, yeah. But literally, it feels like they were operating solely on word of mouth, that it was word of mouth that spread yeah. like wildfire. And then, of course, as they got books and stuff like that, I guess they would have done TV appearances potentially and whatever. But it is just fascinating to me that they built a business. I mean, that is the one thing that I will give them um, is that it's like, wow, way to make a business and, and a, a, you know, non-traditional business out of nothing. Yeah. They were the Chris Jenners of their time. They were. And shout out Chris Jenner. I respect you as a businesswoman. Yes. Um, she does. She's, listen, if you, 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 no one can argue that. And if you argue that, that's misogyny. Yeah. Um, and help keep an eye on Kim. That's a whole other podcast because yeah. I'm, I'm very concerned for her. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> I just wrote down the demons have asserted themselves. Jesus. <laughs> That's written in my notes. I can't. Yeah. Now, here mm-hmm. is a theory that I'm going to bring forward. And I don't want to sound like a naysayer, but right now I think maybe I need to be just for my own, for my own mental course. health. Yes. Is it possible? And look, I haven't looked into this. Normally I would Google it on the break, but 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 truthfully, again, I'm just a, I'm, a, I'm on heightened alert. Um the Amityville case. Now, yeah. I'm not suggesting that I don't believe, I don't believe. I'm not suggesting that, but is it possible that there could have been some sort of toxin or poisoning situation? Because sure. it feels like the kind of common thread felt like. Remember when we were talking about, I think it was Berkshire's UFO, and there was like the case where the government was doing that experiment by releasing LSD into the right. water? Yeah. I'm like, is it possible that there could have been something similar happening here? Was it like high levels of asbestos? Was it that, and that, or, or something like that, that when you're breathing it in in the house, you start to hallucinate or have these kind of like mental shifts? The reason why I ask is because I do find it interesting that everyone seemed to, and I'm going to use this colloquial term, I am not using this as a term for mental illness at all. I am merely saying they all seemed to lose their minds. Like they all seemed to, to, yeah. and again, I'm not talking mental illness here. I'm talking about, they seemed to be, to be altered. That would be a better way of putting it. Altered. Yes. Which when they had these seances and the camera people in there and they said that someone passed out, other people were all feeling sick. I was just like, it, it, and listen, I believe in energies and I believe that that could be completely true. I only throw it out there as like a, a possible theory that came into my mind at the time is like, is it possible there was some sort of high levels of some neurotoxin or something in that house? Which one could argue, was that started by the negative spirits? Could be too, chicken or egg. But it just felt to me like if people were having that strong a reaction, being in there for a very short amount of time, and then we know that after 28 days, it had like altered these people significantly who were living there, it just felt like it was a possibility to me. Sure. That makes sense. Also, shout out to shirtless Ryan Reynolds because this Blanche is apparently here and not going anywhere. Oh, okay. I, I, if, you know what? Today, it's your Blanche day. <laughs> we'll, we'll, share, we'll share the crown of Blanche. Today's you. Look at, listen, I'll take it. So, take Ryan it. Reynolds, what a nice man. What a nice man. Who looks hot as hell when he's got that shirt off and those low slung jeans. So, he's got like the G.I. Joe cuts. Wow, I really have transformed. <laughs> oh my God, this is the Amityville case in real time. I need you to know how hard it is to say just, he's nice. <laughs> oh and I'm sure God. he is. I'm sure he is. He seems lovely. Very funny. 
Good man. See, I go back into it. I go back into Ash almost immediately. I'm like, it's it's uncomfortable for me to, to talk in these terms, but here we are. But here we are. <laughs> the werewolf cases are fascinating. And I wanted to just say, I also think it's super interesting that like, what about the possibility that what we know as werewolf lore, is it possible that rather than a, a real life werewolf involving actually transforming with the fur and the and the teeth and whatever... Yeah. And that perhaps what a real life werewolf is, is this phenomenon that that was described for, I think there, it feels like it was, there was a few different cases that it sounded like a similar thing. Like, is it possible that, again, what this kind of story had been built upon was from something real life where the person does, quote, transform into a wolf? It's not literal in that the body and the hair and you become right. an animal, but that you, you metaphorically absolutely became an animal with the super strength, the biting, the gnawing, the growling. Like, that's fascinating to me that there's a possibility that that werewolves could be real. Because it sounds to me like from this, I would say they are. Um, and to that, I also just wrote down, like, isn't it a little risky that after he's been having all of these outbreaks, um, the, the Bill, the, the one gentleman we talked about, that they put him on a plane? What happened if he had had that kind of outburst on a plane? I... I don't agree with a lot of decisions that got made. <laughs> I just feel like like Ed and Lorraine should have traveled to them. I just feel like that was such a a risk. Yeah. Uh I can't stop thinking about like he like shoved and like bit people and put a cop in the hospital and they were like, "Oh, you're normal? Cool." Get out of here. You know? Get out of here. Yes. Like, there's this thing called assault. You can't charge people with it. Like, wild. It's just wild to me. It's, I mean, again, well, that's terrifying too. Um, Then you got into the Conjuring universe. Patrick Wilson can get it. (laughs) (laughs) I could not be happier that, oh my God. That's what the that's what the glitch was in the video. It was the Blanche going through Zoom into you. <laughs> I think I have been I have the yeah, I've been possessed by the spirit of Blanche. By the Blanche. That, the uh, the episode of Girls with Patrick Wilson is one of the I mean, acting-wise, I loved that story. I loved that episode and again, I love his face. What? Again, if you've listened to this show, dear listeners, I do not talk like this. This is, if if ever I've believed in anything, it's now. And it's Blanche and her power. And the Blanche Um, transference. The the Blanche furrence. The Blanche furrence. Blanche furrence. Well. Get the merch going. (laughs) Um, I can't wait. Yeah, this Annabelle story, the doll, that is going to haunt me in my sleep. That is just one of the most terrifying things I've ever heard. I can't believe that they still kept it. Yep. Now, you said Arnie Johnson stabbed his landlord. All I could think of was the wedding singer when Steve Buscemi says, why can't you be more like your brother? Harold wouldn't beat up his landlord. I'm trying <laughs> to make jokes now because I'm scared. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> this is where the notes are going. Yeah. Um, and then I just have to take a quick second because you did really blow my mind with this revelation about uh, Judith Penny and and the, I'll call it, non-traditional uh, situation that was sure. going on there. Um, I would also just like to add that obviously if 
everyone is consenting and happy and not abused, then that is their prerogative that I think I can speak for both of us and say we do not judge. But when you are a man in your 30s and you are bringing a 15-year-old girl into your home who you have admitted had a tough life, didn't have a lot of options, that does paint it in a pretty creepy light that then you began a physical sexual relationship with her because you are literally abusing your position of power by bringing her into your home and providing her with things like shelter and food. That is um, really uh, egregious. It's it's bad. And it's fascinating, again, that she stayed for 40 years before she left, which is, <sighs> to be honest with you, probably the most sad part of all of this to me is I feel like this woman um, – who was still a child at 15 when she was brought in there, was put into a situation that she either felt like she couldn't get out of or, you know, I guess there's a world in which you could... She was just too young. She was too young to consent. She was too young to understand. And I feel like if her history and childhood was traumatic, as, as it had been alluded to, I mean, how sad that this person essentially got preyed upon, in my opinion, and put in this situation. Again, 15, too young to consent, real gross. Um, and the the again, it, it also dips over into the real gross, uh, or stays rather, in the real gross realm when with this revelation about Lorraine saying, I'll only let you do the movies if you leave out anything about us being involved in child pornography, in having sex with minors, in... Yeah. All of these things, which, again, I think most humans, if 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 asked, we're telling the story of your life. Is there something you'd like us to leave out? I don't know that most humans would be like, well, please don't say anything about child porn. Like, I don't think that you say that unless there's where there's smoke, there's fire. Like, that doesn't just come to people's minds uh, unless there's rumor. Um, and again, where there's well, where there's smoke, there's fire, as I said. Um, not, you know, it's just. Because we also know that they were living with an underage girl in their home under very questionable circumstances, also hearing her say things about child pornography is very unsettling and sad to me because it just feels like what was going on in that house if, if, if you know, oh, God, that's yeah. so heartbreaking. It's interesting to me that Lorraine tested and she was – her clairvoyance was like – as they tested it, it was like, no, no, this is legit. This is real. Because I wonder the state of Ed's. It feels again to me, I'm going to go there. It feels again to me like Ed had an experience that I'm not saying was untrue and in his childhood, sure. right? That, yeah. that was kind of his, his whole, th- the beginning of this for him. Right. Do I believe that he had a gift like, like Lorraine did? It doesn't sound to me like he did. It sounds to me like he kind of hitched his wagon to her talent, that it, she had this mm. legitimate ability and he maybe he had some experiences but but he it sounds to me like he saw something in her and then was like we can make this into a a business now granted i'm not saying she was coerced because it sounds like you know she she did this work until basically until the end of her life so it's not that but it's more just like i just feel like this man also since we knew that he kind of uh, brought a child into his home under mm. those circumstances. It just feels like this was somebody that potentially was had met Lorraine and then saw that she had this gift and was like, well, let's do this. We can make money off of this. And that never sits well with me, you know? Oh, no, no. And it, yeah, I get it. Because when it, when you look, when you compare what the two of them could 
allegedly do. Hers seemed like his just seemed like his was not something that, that you could be tested for right. in any way. And it's like, it was, but also, what else did you did you bring to all of this? Um, it was also very kind uh, to cast Patrick Wilson uh, in that. Um, I will also say, Wedding Singer is one of my favorites of all time. Oh yeah! And as soon as you said Steve Buscemi, I was like, best guitar player in the world, self-taught, no lessons. Thank you very much, Pop. That's <laughs> immediately what I think of because he's the best thing in that movie. And the amount of times in my life I go, they were cones. <laughs> they were just cones. Oh, yeah. I say so, that. So many people words. just don't get it. But that movie is solid. It's I love solid. it so, so much. I also feel like my new haircut is slightly reminiscent of Drew Barrymore's hair in that movie, which kind of makes me happy. I probably from the existence of time, have always wanted whatever hair Drew Barrymore has in that moment. And, and you want her Singer Drew Barrymore. Hair. I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway, listen, uh, the bottom line for me is is that I, I mean, this was fascinating because I didn't know anything about them. I haven't seen the Conjuring movies um, and I didn't know anything about Ed and Lorraine as people or what they're kind of, I didn't realize they were connected to Amityville. Like, I didn't know that they had this like, long kind of history in the in the paranormal world so this was fascinating for me and as somebody again who does believe in it again uh, with clutching crystals in my hands um <laughs> i i i again i mean i feel like it's it's interesting because the debate about all of it just feels so so fascinating when it feels like so many people have shared experiences in different places like that's always to me because the paranormal you could argue is just the unexplained right like or or the diving into what the unexplained is and then in that genre it's like well spirits demons ghosts etc sure um but we can't deny that these things are happening like that's a fact whatever the reason is they still happened and and the fact that it happens again, all over the world to so many different people in different walks of life, but the story is still the same, just feels like to me there has to be a bigger explanation, um, which is why when they're just like, yeah, the the demons have asserted themselves, I'm like, that's the scariest thing I've ever heard because that sounds plausible to me. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't think about it too much. Um, I've also never seen the Conjuring movies. It, those aren't, my, my my style um but if you like take the horror movie and you take out the jump scares and just put in a com in some comedy and then you take out any gore and <laughs> sprinkle it with maybe a little romance i'm in <laughs> like the uh paul rudd lake bell eva longoria movie over her dead body i can handle that it's not a horror movie christy it's a romantic comedy about a ghost but the yeah point- that's sad. again it sounds to me like what you've done is you're like i'd like a horror movie that has absolutely no horror elements that is actually a rom- i'd like a romantic comedy that is what yeah. i like yeah. yeah i i do i like an action adventure i like a funny and oh, i'm a sucker for love but um i just from everything i've heard about the conjuring series ed and lorraine's relationship is so so solid and 
so much in love. And in one of the movies, they're like dancing together. And like, apparently the second movie, they really amped, like ramped up the, the love between them. And I don't know if it's because stuff about Judith Penny came out after the first movie Mm. or not, but uh, it's just, it's just very, there's a lot of things that I am unsure of in that that house. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the ghosts are coming from inside the house. Yeah. I yeah. Know. Um, well, listen, what were your, did you have any other takeaways or thoughts um, based on anything I, you researched, based on our experience tonight, based on the fact that I'm, I've made a transformation, my Blanchformation? I could not be happier to see the Blanchformation. Um, I, <laughs> to watch you. <laughs> So primally and without hesitation, talk about Patrick Wilson in such an objectifying <laughs> way <laughs> is so beyond out of your character that it is, uh, yeah, yeah. Especially, uh, like you might do that every once in a while, like uh, in a personal conversation, but sure, this, this way, yeah, you do not. So no. I find it wild, and I don't think i have yet like i don't think i've i don't think i've blanched this episode and i've mentioned ryan reynolds three times now i've said his name and i haven't once reacted more i'm feeling very calm about it so i don't know i feel <laughs> we're gonna need to check the timestamps. but i'm convinced that when that glitched i said 40 years and blanche was like oh okay so it's her turn got it just, You've had 40 years. Now it's my turn. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have. Oh, my God. <laughs> because I've, I've, I've been blanched since the womb. And I assumed I would be to the tomb. But maybe, maybe. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you going to be blanched now? For like, are you going to be full blanched the way she was in the show at the right time? Like, 60s 70s all of that wow oh my god are my loins cooled off (laughs) no 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 i don't believe that for a second i don't believe that for a second i just think i just think honestly that you know maybe this is part of what i need on my journey right now maybe it's like yeah you know you need to borrow a cup of blanche just a spoonful of blanching helps the horror go down. Um, this may yeah. be the most chaotic episode we've ever done on the show. Uh, and we've Easily. done some chaotic ones, but I think yeah. this might be it. And I think it's getting up there for being one of my new faves. Because, I mean, the hey. Curse is a romp. But I'll, I'll be honest, this one is also a romp. I mean, what a gift. Watching the transformation has been uh, surreal. And it's an I... honor to watch it in real time. <laughs> I'm curious to see how long it lasts. Yeah, like, is this just it for me now? Like, oh my God. Okay, test me. Test me. Um, Okay, okay. Give me a name. Give me a name of some sort and uh, we'll see. We have to see where I'm at. Oh my God, did you hear? Paul Rudd is putting out a new movie where he's a romantic lead. Oh, that is good for him though, right? Dear listeners, if you ever needed convincing that the paranormal exists, this is proof of it right now. 
We have literally like switched bodies somehow. Oh my god, we freaky Friday'd. We freaky Friday'd. Oh my god, but like the Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Lohan. Lindsay Lohan one, of course. Which is such a solid movie, and I haven't seen it in years, so I feel scared saying solid, but yeah, I used to love that movie. I watched it a lot. Well, listen, on that note, what a <laughs> what a wild ride this has been. Again, I feel like Blanche from, from womb to tomb it might be a new shirt that people are going to see soon. Uh, the Blanche <laughs> formation is real, maybe another one. Um, I can't wait. I And listen, I thank you for your work and your research in this. I think this is fascinating. I think you did a great job. And I want to make it clear again to the listeners. It's not that we have a, a it's not that we don't want to cover these cases. It's that I don't know that I can. <laughs> maybe I get it. if if we're in person it. again at some point, we record in person again, maybe then. But uh, alone in this house, it is just a lot. So um, <laughs> that's where we're at. But I think this was a great one. Great one to do. Um, we thank you for your work. And also, I feel like before I give the, the you know, the, the run out to the show, maybe yeah. we just need to, I've tested you, maybe yeah. you just need to test me. And I'm just going to, I'm going to just. Okay. I I'm need to test you. Clear my head. I'm going to clear my head. Okay. Okay. Um, did you see that uh, Channing Tatum did a photo shoot? Oh, I would. Okay. It's happened. <gasps> I mean, I. <gasps> I can't even tell if you're going to want that cut from this episode. I can't either. <laughs> I honestly can't. Fuck. Wow, that's. <laughs> it was bigger than Look, me. It just came out. It just came we out. Needed, we needed to test it. And we did. And. Uh... Oh, no. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. 40 years. I didn't mean it. <laughs> well, listen, guess what? Tune in next week to find out what has happened. Is Blanche still in me? Am I possessed by the spirit of Blanche? Has it gone back? We don't know. We'll find out in real time. But until then, yeah. give us a follow on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Sorry, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter, at Not Detective, Patreon, if you like a little bit more. If you like this energy, that is the place for you to be. <laughs> Patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. We've got bonus episodes, mm -hmm. stuff that gets cut for time from these episodes, which are, of course, already obscenely long. Um, we do it over there. We do monthly live Q&As. They are so much fun. Uh, we welcome you to join us if you like. Subscribe there. Also, the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. And again, I might be there might be something coming out of this episode, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode of the show? Oh. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Dr. Feelgood. Not to be ex confused with Dr. Death, this is a different case, and I am jazzed. I know a very little bit about this, but I can't wait to learn more. And I also can't wait to find out where we are on the feel-good meter. Uh, it's only time will tell. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Grohl. Good night, Patrick Wilson. Come on.